Today's conversation is with Matt Bowden, also known as Starboy. He is just a phenomenon, a wild man. He's a rock star. He's been an integral and incredibly controversial part of reforming New Zealand's drug laws, uh, created a whole slew of synthetic drugs that were designed to get people off of their addictions, um, created a whole sort of social movement in New Zealand. It was later sort of mired in controversy. He was basically living in exile for, for quite a few years and has recently come back to New Zealand where he's starting in on some new and very interesting projects. So our conversation today covers a whole lot of ground, everything from the paranormal to religion to psychedelics to legislation. I mean, just the whole works. I had a, a great time doing this interview, got a lot out of it personally, and I am proud and happy to share it with you. Yeah, if you if you don't mind, I guess I'd, I'd like to do this uh, a little bit different than normal. Rather than starting with like a pre-recorded like clip, I just want to explain to you kind of why why I'm doing this, what I'm hoping to get out of the interview, and maybe kind of set the the tone. So yeah, I started this podcast basically with an eye on trying to live as well as possible, right, as fully as possible, as deeply as possible. So my yeah. goal is to get people with with experience, with expertise experts, you know, they can be professionals or not, just people who are living deeply and interestingly, right? And so the goal isn't to get just like a list of tips and tricks of what to do, but much more interested in sort of the how and the why, right? So don't want another list of morning routines. I think what we need more than that is to understand ourselves and, and each other, right? And I think that the best way to do that Definitely the, the most interesting way to do that is by sharing our stories, right? Yeah. So I'm really excited to speak with you today because you have an incredible story. You know, I've just got little snippets here and there from what I've been able to, to find. But um, I mean, it seems like really a, a brilliant path in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, uh, controversy, uh, creativity, uh, success, failure, just you know you've got it all <laughs> and yeah. that uh i i'm just really really drawn to your story and your energy and kind of the yeah really the the brilliance with which it seems you've been living your life so so that's what i want to explore today it's humbling thank you so so yeah thank you thank you for being here and and i don't know maybe we could start out could you just describe like if you had to divide your life into phases or chapters like how would you describe it okay well i arrived in this body in 1971 in um, west auckland in aotearoa new zealand um, and the land of new zealand and i guess i had a childhood and um and then i had a phase of being in um being almost like a mystic in some christian movements and at the same time being a rock guitarist and teaching guitar and then decided I'd come into marketing and um 
and then became an activist and uh, had some people, I guess, some people close to me died with drug overdoses and I saw an opportunity to create safer drug alternatives and to really wire the laws like this, let's change the laws. And um, out of that earlier spiritual phase, having the idea that, um, and the confidence that I could go and change the world and going and having success, some success and then kind of a big, having a little bit too much money phase <laughs> and uh, sort of let's be a rock star and go tour and play festivals with a band and um, which I'd call maybe a midlife crisis. And then after that, a, a kind of a crash and uh, go and sit in Thailand for five years and meditate and find myself and eat rice and learn to speak the language and go into a different sort of a phase of reevaluation. And now I'm in reinvention. And um, I catalogued it before it happened and made it into a series of rock videos, which are available out there. Look up Starboy Eternity, which was me projecting forwards what was going to happen and making it into a steampunk rock trilogy. Well, that's my life. And that's what I'm up to now. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Well, that's great. Um, let's, let's go bit by bit, if you don't mind. Um, tell, me, tell me about your childhood. What was, what was that like? Did you say tell me about my chocolate? <laughs> nope, I said childhood. <laughs> we can talk about childhood, childhood if you want. <laughs> I don't know. I guess my childhood was a little strange. From when I from when I was born, I was born like a month overdue, and I came out and I told my parents at an early age that um, I'm not I'm not from here. This isn't my place. I was somewhere else before, and now now I'm here, and I don't really belong. You guys aren't even my parents, and so um, I got to see the psychiatrist. I think a bit and. Um, and uh, yeah, they just said, oh, look, it's a gifted child. Um, just try to keep him entertained with stuff, you know, teach him other languages or whatever. But um, I, had a, I had a really nice childhood here in New Zealand um, in an area where you walk out the back of the house and you can walk into the bush, which is like forest. And there's, you know, and there's birds and, um, and nature and kind of mud and danger and all these sorts of things. I just love loved the bush environment. I love being around the trees and listening to the trippy things that the birds kind of come out with. Um, I came from a Catholic family. And so we had about uh, seven children, I think. And my parents stayed together. They're still together. And my dad turned 75 years old yesterday. Really proud of him. Um, and so I went to Catholic schools. And uh, my dad was an internet pioneer. He was at IBM. And he kind of said, look, um, one day everyone's going to have a computer in their house and the computers are going to ring each other up over the telephone and exchange information. And the IBM at the time said, well, Terry, no one's going to want a computer in their house and why are they going to want to ring up the other computers? Um, but they gave him one computer and he was one of the first guys to bring the internet to New Zealand. And he was like an evangelist for this new technology. And um, somehow that was kind of contagious, I guess. And I've picked up some of that. Hey, let's do things differently. Just because everyone else says you can't do it, that doesn't mean anything. You should just go and do it. You can, anyone can do anything. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that was kind of childhood. I got through school when I was about, um, I got good enough grades partway through school that it, well, by the time I was 16, I was at university and starting to do a, a degree in sciences and a degree in arts. And I just wanted to do music and play the guitar, really. And I messed up. I was really tricky the way that I arranged my uh, my papers and got everyone's signatures. And so, two years in, they said your degree's totally illegal. We can't. You have to stop now. Or you have to pay back all of the allowance money that we gave you over the years. It was too hard. So I just dropped out of that. So I'm like, I'm gonna be a guitar teacher. Wait, um, sorry. So the the allowance money, like in New Zealand, they give you money to go to university. 
back in the 80s, um, early 90s, yeah, you could rock into university and pay $200 for the year and everything was subsidized. You could walk out with the degree after wow. a few years. Wow. And they also gave you an allowance to live on while you were there. So um, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you're, you're pushing you the limits load. even then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and can we backtrack just a sec? Because, I mean, you said you're in, you're in Catholic school, religious parents, but at the same time, there is this sort of air of innovation and contrarianism in the, in the household, right? So like, yeah. did, how did that work? Because like, when I think of Catholic school and like religious upbringing, I think of restrictions, discipline, uh, just, you know, you must fit into this mold, otherwise you're excommunicated. So how did, how did that play out for you? Um, yeah, I guess I felt a little isolated in that the school was really focused on people playing rugby, which is kind of, um, it's kind of a, a Neanderthal kind of a sport, like football, but with no armor, just bang, bang, and it's violent, just bang, hit that guy, bang. I, I just wasn't into that. Oh, I like playing the guitar, you know? And and so, um, uh, yeah, there were the rugby kids, and then there was the other freaky kind of arty people, and I was one of those. Um, but I, look, I I got to see what rules were about. You know, sometimes I got in trouble for stupid things that I hadn't really done. I just thought, oh, you know, some of these rules are real dumb. You had to wear gray and uh, boys must wear long gray trousers. And so I looked at that and thought, long gray? I'm going to get some jeans and just keep spraying them with bleach, bleach until they're gray. I'm just be wearing them in my ripped jeans. Hey, you can't wear those. Yeah, these are long gray trousers. I can, certain the rules. That's when I learned that, that rules are... They're not really a line that you can't cross. They're made out of all these little words. And there's always gaps where you can get between the letters and get between the words and just go where you need to go. So, you know, one of my philosophies is just keep keep heading for the law at the speed that you're, you're going. If you get the right terminal of velocity, it will open up and create a doorway. You can just go right through it. And um, that's kind of something. That's beautiful, that, man. <laughs> better with like the words that put with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. the snake. Always, it's like the, the. I mean, the law came from the snake, and you just take the end of the snake and just feed it back into the mouth. You know that kind of vision used to come to me a lot when dealing with policy reform and legislation and looking like, okay, the law says that, and you've broken it. No, 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 no. no I'm misinterpreting it this way. What it really says is that the law's wanting me to do this instead, and so just, this is what the thing that I am allowed to do. So this is where I am going to go. You know, and if it's there's an ambiguous spacing, create some new law. You know, just make a new road, and that's kind of what I ended up doing with um, drug policy in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, the missing piece between sort of creative rebellious childhood and reforming drug policy in New Zealand, the, there's a piece in there where, I mean, you have a personal relationship with drugs as well, right? And that, that kind of came in through the rock and roll. Am I right there? No, not really. No. I guess when I was no. at when I was at school, they've got a law that if you're 18 years or under, I think you're not allowed to buy alcohol and so there was no alcohol for sale at school or anywhere nearby and so obviously there'd be cannabis and there's there didn't seem to be any age limit that was totally unregulated it was just illegal and so because there's no age limit that's what everyone ended up ended up doing this in the absence of regulation you've just got this chaos you know and so um hmm. we started using cannabis when we were kids i guess and I didn't really try any other drugs. I found it was a little, something freaky was going on when I smoked that stuff. Um, I'm kind of in that percentage that can maybe get some schizophrenic, you know, paranoid feelings and um, a little too much. So I backed off from that and didn't really do any alcohol or drugs for years. Um, I did a Christian thing from when I was about 18 into my 20s and didn't really even drink any alcohol. Um, it was later that I saw um, really through a spiritual path that... Um, that the um, 
that the plants that people were using in different cultures around the world were opening them up to um, spiritual reality, which I was experiencing without any drugs. And I thought, well, maybe this is going to be something that could help out, you know, some of my friends that aren't seeing anything and hearing anything because I was seeing all sorts of stuff everywhere already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, tell us about that, man. That's, um, I mean, just, I, I heard an interview from you maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I think you said when you were a kid, you could create storms with your mind. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> yeah. Okay. We can go there. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I guess, um, yeah. And I know, I guess a lot of, a lot of people are going to want to take all this with a grain of salt, but what I'm going to do is I am going to accurately, um, um, uh, regurgitate my actual memories that I have and you can make what you like of it you know to be honest and maybe there's confirmation bias and maybe there's all sorts of you know maybe my memories have shifted but I'll tell you what's what I what I how I remember my life yeah I guess my, my first experience with other drugs though <laughs> let me just touch on this and my first experience with research chemicals is being asthmatic as a child and going to the doctor and a lot of things not working and I had all these I guess I had a whole lot of fears and I was locked up and I was having breathing issues and eventually the doctor said, well, listen, there is one thing you could try to my parents. There's a clinical trial going on for a drug called Zastin, Z-A-S-T-E-N, and can't find it now, but um, take the pills and write down on this piece of paper what's happening every day. And so I just did what they told me to do, and um, I was told to come and report back, you know, when the paper was full, and they didn't tell me to advise anyone of any adverse events. What I found when I took the pills is that one day I could see a kid riding a BMX around on top of the school and nobody else could see it. That was really interesting. <laughs> and then another day I was sitting in math class looking out the window and I saw some guys leading an elephant into the um, right across the courtyard and it was all painted, painted and painted. And so it was basically Ganesh. And I saw, and I saw that, and no one else could see that. Hey, what is what's, what's what's the elephant? What are you guys doing with the elephant? The elephant? What are you talking about, man? The elephant's gone. I'm like, wow. A couple of friends of mine were like, hey, how come you're seeing this stuff? And I'm like, oh, maybe it's the pills. <laughs> and so, I think actually that was my first commercial transaction as well. My friends were like, hey, can we get some of these pills? I'm like. Well, you want to pay for that? All right. Okay. Yeah. That's what I see supply demand. So I just kept writing on the piece of paper, went back to the doctor and gave it to him. He's like, oh, <laughs> you're seeing things. These are called hallucinations. Um, <laughs> need to stop taking the pills, but he didn't ask for them back. <laughs> anyway, so those were my first, that's my first psychedelic experience. My first experience with research chemicals and my first commercial transactions. Yeah. Uh, how, how old were you when that was going on? Oh, I must have been early teens, maybe, maybe thirteen or or twelve yeah. or fourteen or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> and and yeah. was that kind of the, I mean, the first your first encounters with I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to describe this. I don't know paranormal, non scientific uh, perspectives, like psychic powers. I don't know what kind of label to put on it, but like, was that your first encounter or yeah. was this? A, I, I just kind of felt there was something else out there and I could feel when my, when my eyes were closed that I could feel things through my hands and through my feet and I could feel other energies when I was going to sleep at night, I could hear voices calling out. And I know this is, it's textbooks sort of schizophrenia. I know, but it gets better. It gets more interesting. Um, and, and, 
I was just drawn to it. And I'd sort of go to the library and, and just pull out books. And I learned how to um, read and digest kind of scientific literature early on and how to look up references and go back. I started with Lyle Watch and Supernature. I read about yogis and what they were doing in, um, in, 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 in India and so on and powers that they had. And it just helped me feel a little bit more normal, I guess. And um and the religion that which they were putting out wasn't, you know, the education wasn't really, I didn't really connect it with anything real. I thought it was a bunch of, I liked some of the characters I was drawn to. I, I thought Jesus seemed really cool. Um, but a lot of the other stuff about you have to do this and you can't do that, all that commandments and laws and that, I just, it just didn't seem to gel for me um because of the relationship that I was forming with law was that it, that it's something which is trying to hold us back and that we need to, um, transcend <laughs> yeah and so I didn't really connect I felt drawn to um, ancient Egyptian um, deities and so on because it seemed to be a, I could just feel there's, a, there's something more powerful there um, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it's, it just strikes me you're incredibly lucky not to to like somehow find the space to to exist in that way without having it shut down with, with medication or whatever, because I mean, that's so often in, in our culture, that's what happens. People just get scared and just like, well, that's crazy. Give them drugs, turn it off, you know? And in, in yeah. so many traditional cultures, that's, I mean, that's what makes someone a shaman or, you know, a visionary, a religious leader, whatever is they, these, it's just a different interpretation of these same experiences. Right. So in our culture, yeah. we tend to judge that as like, oh, that's mental illness. That's bad. It's not normal. And in, pretty much every other culture around the world, they're like, wow, this is something really special. We need to nurture this, train it and like refine it so that it can, so that we can all benefit from it as, as a culture, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you, I mean, did you talk about this with your parents or is, you just kind of kept this as a secret or? Um, yeah, it seemed to, I, I think I still didn't really talk about it because I realized that um, that it just meant more trips to go and see the special doctor who asked weird questions and some of them seemed relaxed, but some of them seemed really worried and just had a yucky energy about them and having to look at all these charts and answer dumb questions. Like, I'm just, just over it. You just learn, learn not to really, um, you just could keep it to yourself a little bit and sort of shut it down and suppress, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, until you find a, an outlet for it. And yeah. so my teenage years, I was pretty dark and, you know, freaked out and introspective, I guess, mm -hmm. um, introverted. Yeah. yeah. Um, until about 18 when um, I was, I guess I was partly through university and, you know, playing in bands and so on. And um, someone talked to me about Jesus and um, I'm just going to just say, if this is a real turnoff for people, just, um, just, if you could just want to bear with me, I'm going to get through it. Okay. Um, uh, and I asked Jesus into my life and uh, something did happen. I was silent by myself on a boat. Asked Jesus into my life, catching my ferry boat and a drunk person wandered down the stairs. This, this is aware of someone standing in front of me and I opened my eyes, this guy in my face saying, God will be with you as long as you live. God bless you, son. Walked off. And I was like, a, it felt like the, the wardrobe had opened and Aslan had breathed on me or something. You know, I, I felt like I'd connected with something that wasn't just books on a page. Something was actually real. And, um, and I'd connected and my personality changed in an instant from being really kind of introverted to being an extrovert. I felt accepted and loved or something. And then, 
And it was after that I went and told my parents, hey, you know, I've I asked Jesus in my life. And they were, you know, for Catholics, that's pretty scary because it means that you've gone outside of what's accepted and told as being the sort of box that that's acceptable. And I'd gone out and then and but I just had this faith and belief and this the idea that, you know, if you really believe in something, you, you manifest and you have this power and I remember stepping outside of the of the house one day and I'd had an argument with my parents and they're like, you know, you have to, you know, it's pouring with rain, you need to wear a raincoat. And I'm like, I'd, and I'd just been reading about how Jesus had been in this boat with his buddies and it was a storm and uh, and they woke him up and he was annoyed that he'd been woken up. He just told the storm to chill and it chilled. And the, and the vibe that he had was, why didn't you guys do this yourself? Don't you realize that you've got authority over the elements? You know, don't you realize that um, that all of this other reality, exterior reality is kind of subject to what's inside? And so I just, I just, I thought that they were challenging God. So I just told the rain to stop and it did. And so maybe coincidence, good timing, but it stopped and it scared the shit out of everyone. So I just walked, well, yeah, the rain's not getting on me anymore. Awesome. No more need for raincoats or umbrellas. And the, I mean, the, and the message is that I don't need your covering over me anymore. You know, I've got a, I've got an open heaven myself now. And so the next day I remember my dear sweet, mother and father saying well why don't you do that again um because it was pouring with rain i thought oh my god they're challenging god so i just commanded the rain to stop and it did and then they told me to get out of the house and go and live somewhere else because the idea was <laughs> fear we don't understand it so we have a fear response and the fear response that we have is that we have a we have a negative image of deity so we say oh it's devil that's that's devil that's what that is because we don't understand it so get out you know <laughs> um and so I was out, but I felt uh, like I triumphed really over and and having that kind of response from the universe and the weather. I don't know what it is. We have just such an, a buildup of energy and woof, it goes out there and it just changed the conditions somehow. I can't do it on demand anymore. <laughs> but um, in the day, I, I was that kind of thing was kind of common for me. And let me just say this, not just me, but lots of other people, you know, and the prophetic gifts in that that I had weren't just me. It was lots of people, lots of people that are way better than me. I'm just comfortable talking about it. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that. This definitely, it's the kind of thing very few people are comfortable talking about. And as soon as they are, they're generally shut down as like, that's crazy. There's no, there's no way. And, and that's really unhelpful because strange things do happen. And I think the most reasonable way to engage with it is with curiosity and respect, you know, and that's, that's the true scientific method is like, wow, there's this unexplicable thing happening. Let's look at it, you know, and, and, you know, for every person yeah. who says that maybe, maybe nine out of 10 are, are just completely full of shit, you know, maybe, that's right. I don't know. Um, but I think it's in our best interest always to suspend judgment, to be respectful and to really just keep like a child's mind of just like, wow, you know, that's, that's incredible. Like, you know, tell me more basically. Yeah. And that's, so, so, so thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. Definitely. It's, um, yeah, so I know it's, it's scary because you open yourself up to such ridicule, you know, with stories like that, but that's the reality of what happened to me. And that's the attraction for a lot of people with these, with spirit, you know, spiritual things. And eventually, you, you know, you just, you just jump in and join a cult or something because to try to find other people that are like-minded and that's how these things happen. But the attraction is that there is a lot of re real stuff happening and it's not just in Christianity, just to be that real clear there. My position is that I've seen this happen with a lot of other groups and it and, and the stuff that's, that yogis are doing and the stuff that's happening in, um, even with, with that I've seen with Buddhists and um, in Thailand and so on, I was living there. It's, 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 it's um, 
the God or the consciousness or whatever doesn't seem to be um, aligned to endorsing any particular brand, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in this because it puts a lot of pressure on my agnostic position, right? So I, I work a lot with, with psychedelics as, you know, personally and as a guide, helping other people in their own experiences. And I have a pretty firm agnostic position in terms of like, are these tools to help us see whatever it is we have inside more deeply or are they tools to connect us with something higher than ourselves you know and there's there's a lot of people on both sides and i consistently kind of come back to this this sort of idea of like well anything you see uh you're only going to see through your mind and perceive through your senses so ultimately you know, at least when you're in a psychedelic experience, there doesn't really seem to be a way to differentiate to me if it's something higher external to yourself or something deeper within yourself. You know, and I, and I think any profound spiritual practice is always going to take you into your own psychology and it requires you to go into your psychology in order to really experience it and vice versa. Any deep psychological exploration is going to take you to parts of yourself that are beyond your conscious control. And therefore, basically synonymous with divinity, with God, with some greater power than yourself. But when you say... But is it a greater power than yourself or is it your own power? Uh, well, it depends how you define self, right? So if, if self is my conscious mind, then it's, it's greater than yourself. If, if you say, well, no, it's, it's getting into my subconscious, it's getting into my bodily intelligence, it's getting into some deeper form of intelligence that's just beyond my understanding... Yeah. Then, then yeah, it's just a deeper part of myself. And that's where I, I tend to go because it seems more practical to me, right? I, I would much rather help people find their own internal power than give them yeah. a God to worship, you know? Totally. Uh, yeah. I'm right with you. And I think the agnostic position that you talk about is that's where I, I'm really comfortable there as well. And if you've, particularly if you are shaman and you've got a group of people, then you don't want to be projecting all your perspectives and shit on everybody. Just, just, just be open to whichever language and whichever culture and set of ideas is coming up. Otherwise, otherwise it's an, it's an abuse of the position really, I think. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm quite happy with God or divinity or just this physical reality or whichever way people want to go really. <laughs> Yeah. But, but when you say I could stop the rain, that is uh, a pretty clear indication. I mean, especially you have, you have external witnesses confirming it. Um, You know, that's a pretty clear indication. That's not just internal in that case. Like if, if, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are just going to say, no way, you know, he was hallucinating or whatever. Okay, fine. But but if oh, there's a lot of us, a lot of us are, are uh, seeing this, and my encouragement is please try it yourself. Please build up confidence in your own strength and power, and keep trying, and keep trying, and keep pushing. You know, and if you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, totally I, I think that's that's a great perspective. Rather than than trying to take some sort of abstract position and like being, okay, I'm the judge. What is real? What is not real? What is possible? What is not possible? It's like, that's such a, a boring perspective. You know, it's so limited. It's like, why don't you just dig deep within yourself and see what you can do rather than trying to sit on the judge's stool and saying, he's lying. He's telling the truth. This is right. That's wrong. Like, no, that's, 
that's useless. Like the really interesting thing is like, can you be inspired by this story to see how far you can go? You know, and I, yeah. I fight the same way with, I mean, I work a lot with, with Wim Hof, uh, with heat, with cold, you know, and there's, there's a lot of sort of similar stories there of, you know, the, the monks in, in Tibet, in the Himalayas, they, people for, for centuries have come back to Europe or to the U S with all these crazy stories of, you know, they can sit out all night, uh, drying sheets in the middle of winter. Uh, you know, they can spend a year living outside without getting close to a fire, without wearing anything more than a tunic. Um, and even in, in more sort of esoteric forms, there was these different branches of this sort of Buddhism where they could, you know, run for hundreds of miles without stopping to sleep or eat. Uh, there was, um, like telepathic communication, all these different stories were coming out of, out of these places from Europeans or, or Americans who like got embedded in that culture. were living there for 10, 15 years. They'd come back, write these books. And everyone's like, that's crazy. That's impossible. So just no, to, but it's real, it's real, it's real. Get out there and taste it and see and go it, and explore it. Exactly. Know? Exactly. And, and, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, there was no evidence, but now there is clear evidence that people can control their body temperature to an astounding degree. They can run for hundreds of miles or, or even thousands uh, without without stopping for anything more than than a few minutes. Um, the sort of mental telepathy thing that's not confirmed by by science, but but I mean, just taking the cold for an example, right? Like there's so much mystery there. I mean, you tell the, the average person on the street, you can control your body temperature with your mind. They just tell you you're crazy, right? But obviously, you know, Wim Hof can do it, but but even more than Wim Hof, I mean, there are people, it's been demonstrated, they can control the temperature on their fingers individually. Heat one finger yeah. up, cool another finger down, just with the power of their mind. And, and to cool. the degree that it's been studied scientifically, there's a huge variety. It's not like there's one method. So when Wim Hof does it, when he heats his body temperature, he's in you know freezing cold ice. He keeps a stable body temperature, even elevated body temperature. His metabolism is jumping up around 300%, right? His intercostal muscles are just pumping like crazy. They're sucking up a bunch of, of glucose. He's heating his, his core, even his skin. And it's just like this incredible metabolic powerhouse, right? Yeah. The, the, the Tumo monks who are doing it, their metabolism is dropping by 60%. And they're getting the same external effects or even more powerful external effects. Yeah. yeah. And are they doing that? Are they doing all the breathing and puffing and puffing or are they just sitting there and they're doing a similar breathing method, but, but much more relaxed. Yeah. So they are doing, they're doing they. I mean, so first of all, until very recently, all of this was like top secret. Um, it, Basically, you had to go there and become a monk to learn this stuff. And little by little, information is coming out, but it's not 100% reliable and it's not really clear what's truthful and what's just like wishful thinking. But it, it seems, to the best to the best of my knowledge, that they're doing a very similar breathing technique. Um, so Wim Hof is, is much more sort of energetic and definitely like hitting really hard on the, the adrenaline side of things. Yeah. Tumo breathing method seems to be much more focused on visualization it's, it's definitely is a series of inhales and exhales and then breath holds. Um, but when you're holding the breath, you're really focused on visualizing your inner fire. And it's like a very detailed uh, series of visualizations where that fire is like coming up inside of you. It's, it's, you see the flames like coursing throughout your entire body. You're letting your, your consciousness like become those flames and, and heating up your entire body. Yeah, so identifying with the element, letting your consciousness be become the flames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it comes down to what, you know, what are we? What is our body and what is material reality? You know, everything's 
we taught to think everything's solid, but nothing's really solid. Everything is just, you know, you look at subatomic particles, everything's just vibration and just vibration and energy. And we're all, I mean, all, all of us are just one thing. I mean, um, I've got, I've got sisters and, and we've got similar DNA and we came from a common mother, but you and I, Eric, come from a common ancestor. And then we come from a common ancestor as the trees and the chickens and everything else. To start off with, there's this one cell. And if each of us has like a consciousness or a spirit or whatever, and originally we were just one. And before that, there was just one consciousness. So there's just, there's just one system. We're just all one system. And so each of us, right now I'm identifying with this, but I'm being met, but I could come out of that and be one with something else, you know, and, and I guess this is this is something which I I experienced a couple of times in um in um in the ministry that I had was to look at somebody and look into their into their eyes and be able to um, become one with their memories and their timeline and then to be outside of time for a bit and to be able to see things that happened things that were going to happen and I found that I found that I was able to able to do that through just being um, being open to trying I was able to slip out of time and see a whole lot more information and then and then I just tried to make myself available to it to the point I could remember one day sitting and my phone ringing and looking at the phone thinking okay this is this is going to be cool I'm ready I'm ready and I pick it up and say don't tell me anything you've called me because you've got a question don't tell me the question because if I can guess the question then if I tell you the answer you're going to be more confident that I that I'm that I'm in the flow the question is that you've got a daughter and she is um and I could see the world I could see it spinning and it slowed down in Africa I'm like halfway down Africa on the right hand side and she hasn't contacted you is that the problem yes okay okay now the answer the the her cell phone has recently been submerged in water and is not operational. And then I was able to, and I hadn't done it before, but just I was able to, I felt like go down across and up into the other person's experience and feel the daughter's emotions and what was going on and what she's thinking and feeling and then come back and report. And this person was, so, you know, in shock, you know, how did you do that? I'm like, well, I don't know, actually. But I was looking at something the other day on... Um, you know, that fantastic fungi documentary about mycelium, how mycelium sit under the ground and they connect to all the trees. And the, we never knew before that there was this underground network that the trees are communicating with each other and the trees are always kind of one organism. They're, they're sharing nutrients and they're sharing warnings and messages and information through this previously unknown and visible underground system. And it just sort of struck me that from these sorts of experiences that we're the same, that, there's, that, that, um, that there is some kind of... Um, um, the underground system that's connecting all of us where we can, you know, log into somebody else's thoughts and feelings and come back out and experiences that in a sense, there's a part of us, which is just one uh, consciousness or um, there, there's one that, that original um, spirit that was in that original cell that we can go back through into and, and, and share each other's experiences. And I don't know how I got onto that, but yeah, that's, that's, that's something that, no, it's That's great, man. Thank you. My mind at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so let me just um, sort of take that that same observation and and give sort of a an, a different spin to it because I mean that's that's the kind of experience and belief that psychedelics are really good at giving you, right? And there seems to be good evidence that, you know, there's, there are neuro neurological correlates to that kind of experience, that way of seeing and experiencing things. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, I mean, 
to the degree that it's been studied, which is, is not very much, but to the degree it has been, it seems like the default mode network is being shut down. And the default mode network is like this loose sort of conglomeration of parts of the brain that tell us our identity, tell us, you know, who we are, who we aren't, what we like, what we don't like. And that sort yeah. of barrier of identity gets dissolved and we start to feel connected to nature, to each other. We get this, this sense of, of oneness, of unity, of, of non-duality which in most religious systems is considered enlightenment, right? And it, there, when I go back to the, the sort of agnosticism, it seems like, you know, there's, there's two sort of alternate explanations. One is, well, you're, you're getting closer to the truth. That is, you know, that is the truth and you're just seeing it more clearly. Another is, well, these are just, you know, the, the perceptual effects of a certain neurological state and there's nothing nothing else sort of to it than that um and when i hear you talk it seems to me like in in your experience you personally have have a lot of reason to believe the the former rather than the latter like it does seem to me that your way of perceiving this, this oneness, this unity is, is not just something you experience sort of on your own in isolation. It's directly informs the way you relate to other people and relate to the world. And it, and it gives you abilities that you wouldn't otherwise have. Is that yeah, right? I think, yeah. I mean, it's like the story. Um, I'm not sure the name of the story. There's a famous story about um, there's a two-dimensional world and three-dimensional object passes through it. So maybe we've got a square, we've got a circle, and, you know, um, and, you know, the, the square, the circle bumps into the square and finds that it's got four sides. And so it's got, it's a square, and the square bumps into the circle and finds it's got one side all around. So it defines what a circle is, you know. And so they're sitting in the two-dimensional world, and then one day a three-dimensional object passes through that plane, you see, and it starts off like it's just a dot, and then it's a then it's a rhomboid, and then it's just a dot again, it goes through. And so they're trying to work out, hey, what the hell was that? It's a three-dimensional object passing through a two-dimensional world and so we are in like a three-dimensional world here um but it's not a three-dimensional world there's higher dimensions to it you know and and some of the higher dimensions we're all connected and th this world this universe everything's just based on frequency and um we can tune ourselves in to an awareness of the, those higher dimensional structures. I think what I was doing is just coming, I worked out how to come to a state of mind through worship, focus, whatever. I changed the resonant frequency out of that beta mode, that shutting down that default mode network and just coming into this other Zen state where I felt like I was hearing from God or whatever or connected. And that's when I was able to just perceive a whole lot more information and dissolve the boundary of who I am and go right into the person in front of me and be able to tell them what's going on because they're not able to see it because they've got some blockages or whatever and come back out or go back to source and just feel this love and support, this parental kind of loving, loving, loving vibe that's there from the whatever the source is, God, creator, universe, whatever you want to call it into people's lives and um yeah so i kind of i kind of see that the higher dimensionality is there for everybody and there's different ways of accessing it and it seems to be yeah by shutting down some of the filtration system that's in our brain that's trying to cut us off from it whether you do that through meditation or through breathing or through eating a mushroom 
Um, maybe there's electronic ways to do it. Um, you could probably do it with, a, with flashing on a screen. I don't know. There seems to be a lot of, lot of different ways, but I think it's just just becoming into a, a place where we are more observant and aware of the higher dimensionalities um, of our universe. I think and it's possible to slip outside of the three dimensions here. Um, it's to be in different places at the same time with the consciousness and to slip outside of time as well. Why not? <laughs> well, the, the obvious answer from a skeptic would be because it's impossible. <laughs> That's why not. <laughs> no, it's, it's not because you're just, you've got, you've got three dimensions, you've got four dimensions with time. You don't know that, that we're limited to those number of dimensions unless you explore outside of them because you're still on that two-dimensional plane saying, look, a rhombus can't exist, but it, it can. I mean, we know that like cube, sorry, a cube can exist. We know it because we're in a three-dimensional world. But if you only had experience with two dimensions, you say, oh, that, that just can't happen. Or, yeah. Yeah, you know perspective I mean? that I think is, is really helpful here is to say it is so much more likely that this set of senses we have is inadequate to describe reality in itself than the contrary yeah. that like the by far the most rational assumption is that we're only perceiving about 0.001% of what we could perceive you know and we see little bits of that in in animals you know we know there are senses they have that that we don't have um yeah and and i think I mean, the, the, all of our sort of technological advances that we're using to talk to each other today, for example, are, are based on the assumption that we can eventually discover everything. And, and you know, that's, that's a useful heuristic, definitely. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's also reasonable to, to consider at least that it's only a heuristic and that there are probably realms of reality beyond our perception and beyond our comprehension and it, it's partly be, because of that that things get so sort of difficult to talk about when you get into this because i mean i mean i i have a lot of respect for what you're saying and for for your perspective i have also spoken with a lot of people who who sound sort of similar and strike me as just being full of shit like they're just looking for attention basically. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of that on both sides. And I think um, precisely because it's this sort of esoteric realm that's so difficult to define and so difficult to talk about, mm -hmm. it, it sort of opens the door for a lot of charlatans basically. And, and that's unfortunate because I think, uh, you know, this is something that's definitely worth our time, worth our attention, or at the very least worth our, our respect, you know? Um, yeah, I, I would just question why you say that if there's this other reality that's beyond our comprehension. Um, I, well, I don't but, think it's beyond our comprehension. Well, I think that. Well, maybe not yours, but I, 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 I guess I would just say I think probably 90% of the people who are listening to this have not had an experience or, or maybe one or two isolated experiences that could give yeah. them sort of an idea of what you're talking about i mean your your fluency with this type of perception is is uncommon definitely and my my comfort with it is is largely based on my experience with psychedelics it's also based on i mean my, my mom is basically i don't know manic depressive um 
and in her sort of more manic phases definitely seems to be tapping into this type of perception, this type of reality. Um, so it's, it's something I have some sort of firsthand knowledge of some secondhand knowledge of, but I, I think for most people, it, it sounds pretty foreign. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. And it sounds, it seems pretty weird for me as, as well, but I, I think that our minds are filtering and they're stuck in a system where they've got used to rejecting certain information and um, saying this is beyond our comprehension. It's part of that. It's just undoing that and coming to the mind and say, well, no, I'm choosing not to believe that anymore. I'm choosing, I want to choose to believe that um, it is, I want to align myself with the idea that there is a part of me which is able to perceive. Because when you were first born, you, you know, you weren't kind of sure how to use your eyes or your ears, but you kind of, you kind of worked it out, you know what I mean? And you trial and error how to use your muscles and your senses. And so just by allowing yourself the uh, freedom to for your um, that higher part of your mind to sort of take over in a sense and to, uh, to to take over your filters and to open them up and say I want to allow myself to perceive more um, you start to open a, you start to open a door to somewhere else and you can start to perceive well I mean I've, I've ever experienced it's like like I go to a churchy thing and do worship which is play music freeform to get everyone a mind state into a receptive mind state where they're able to connect with something higher and all be aligned and then look at look at someone and say your name is and I, when I see them a vision appears on top of the person's face of an olive tree your name's Olive, Olivia and this morning you and just feeling going right into her mind and her memory this morning you were eating breakfast you were swallowing a runny piece of egg as it was passing down your throat you had a thought God if you're real why won't you talk to me is that your name and did that happen okay here's the next part you know and so i could i could do that for a while i'd be walking down the street and feeling oh my god my baby's gonna die what the hell i don't have kids oh my god my baby's gonna die what's this intense experience going on? seeing someone walking towards me the facial expression kind of matches the emotions i'm feeling and like whoa whoa it's you your baby you've got a sick child okay here's what's gonna happen you know and just being open to being receptive to the energy that other people are putting out. And it just, we, we, we put out a whole lot more than, than we give ourselves credit for. I think like you can, you can put a, a, like the heart, for instance, the heart, there's an energy center here that just broadcasts and broadcasts and broadcasts all the time. And um, if you, you can put, um, you can put reading and the, the, uh, equipment in front of your body and just pick up all the frequencies that are coming out of this out of here. And I think we, we, we read a lot out of other people as well, that people are broadcasting, broadcasting, and you can stand in front of someone and pick that up. Once you learn how to detune it, you, that you can, you can, um, um, you can, totally read somebody's emotions and the events that have happened that have caused those and just feel really what's what's going on um i've had experiences i've had some limited experiences with telepathy as well but if people want to experience that just go to india and hang out in the ashram because a lot of people can can do that they can just take their energy when you're at the right state of mind and meditation i mean you got to sit there for a few days in meditation and just go to come right into your mind and speak some words and step back out again. You, I mean, I feel, I feel the person coming in, think, whoa, what are you doing on my head? Hear these words of oh, this and then out again. It's like, well, that's, yeah, okay. Right, that's telepathy. Okay, that's how that works. <laughs> that was cool. And then you've got to learn how to put that, project that out as well by putting yourself into that right state of mind. 
raising up the right emotional uh, emotional energy and <laughs> everything seems to be about, be about intention and energy. You raise yourself into the right energetic flow and set the intention and through that intention you you create, you know. I believe that we are that that we are there's something inside of us that is linked to the original consciousness that was that was involved in the creation and the starting of this pattern that kind of emerged that which is you know the universe is coming from the spot and coming out move out of nothing whatever that was that i call it consciousness or intention we've got that in us and so we've got that same ability through accessing that same um that same energy to be able to use our consciousness to manifest and make something happen whatever it is make a hand warmer or colder or put another thought out there or cause the cloud to disperse or there's no real limit to what you can do when you really believe it yeah and, and again the I, I think it's really important to encourage people rather than taking the perspective of the abstract scientist judging is this right or is this wrong take the perspective of the explorer the adventurer this is your life. See what you can do with it, you know? And yeah, and, go and measure it. Go and measure it. People are doing this stuff. Take some equipment and measure it and work out how it's happening. Don't just say it's impossible. We'll just go and say, oh, okay. <laughs> let's go and see how it's working. Yeah. Because if you yeah, get let's in the see right if I can do it, you know, like really open yourself up to that, that possibility. And, and no one, I mean, no one can tell you what your limits are, right? And, yeah. but one thing is clear, if you have a, predetermined notion of what they are you're you know you're not going to be wrong you're gonna and the psychedelics are great as well this is what i mean i was um i was frustrated because the groups that i was the churches or whatever that i was part of i could do this kind of stuff some other people could but there were always a bunch of people who were uh, frustrated because they didn't have this gift or ability or whatever and i'm like well the rules in the religion or whatever are that anyone can do anything as far as i can tell from what christ's saying just if you've got a desire, probably that desire is there because you're meant to be doing the stuff. So just believe for the gift and start doing it. And um, and then when I when I um, started just, you know, someone came into my office one day and said, you want to help me market this product? And it was a pill for, um, for people that take drugs, a safer alternative. And um, I really didn't know what it would do. I said, well, help, help market this pill. What does it do? I don't know. Eat some. Well, okay. So I sat down at a at a lunch with some agency clients. So I'm supposed to be selling some advertising and looking around the room, so on my plate, I could see chicken and the salad were starting to have vibes at each other. And, and I thought that something was going to happen. And so I sort of jumped up and warned everybody. And, um, and um, yeah, the guy said, hey, are you on drugs? And I thought about it and remembered eating the pills earlier that day and thought, yeah, yeah, I'm on drugs. How about that, you know? And I didn't get a sale. <laughs> But um, <laughs> but I thought, well, that's that's really interesting. And so I had a look at it. It was it was um, um, it had turbina corymbosa, morning glory seeds, lysergic acid, and so it was that's my first experience with lysergic acid. And then this, just when I took these things, also I could see other places and I could see other worlds and all this other stuff. And it wasn't wasn't really hallucinations. It was the same sort of space that I would get into. Um, spiritually, when someone's, you know, asked me a question, I'd go off to this space where I'd see these other things and be able to come back with answers, which is what a shaman does, you know. 
And I thought, well, these pills are handy. Maybe these pills are for spiritually dull people who can't really connect so that they can sort of find God or whatever. <laughs> when I did my research, so I discovered shamanism. I thought, shamanism is not some evil witchcraft thing. It's people just trying to connect to the same God for crying out loud. Okay, these pills are, these, these plants are obviously here for a reason. And um, they're obviously here for this time now. It's time for us to evolve our consciousness a little. And, you know, I mean, I really think for humans that we need to, evolution sort of happens in bumps. And I think we're just on the verge of the next bump. And particularly with this virus that's going around, um, we need to be able to improve our immunity and we need to be able to improve our health. And, um, and we need to be able to connect with each other a little bit more and uh, be a bit more perceptive. And so I see psychedelics sort of waking up now. These have been the, these have been tools that have been hidden all this time for um, us to reconnect with the, whatever it is, the mystery, the, um, the divine, the, the mycelium, which joins us together, the reason, the answers. Mm. Um, There's a, a beautiful quote from Terence McKenna, which is uh, our life is a mystery sus- suspended between two eternities. Our life is a mystery. Suspended, suspended between two eternities. Two eternities. What are the two eternities? The eternity before you're born and the eternity after you die. Is it not the same one? Uh, could be. Know. Could be. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's like infinity. Is there? Can there be one infinity that's bigger than another? Can one? Can there be any more than one eternity? I don't know. I mean, those are yeah. philosophical questions. But but just as as kind of as a way to sort of set the emotional tone of, of, you know, yeah, life is, is a mystery. And the more we perceive it as such, the, the greater our possibility for, for discovering the unexpected. And, and yeah. I, I just like the, the focus on, on eternity because it just puts things in perspective and it's just like, it's so easy to slip yeah. into my perceptions are the only valid perceptions and my life is the only important thing that's happening. It's like, no, 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 wait a minute. Like I just realized I'm sitting in front of two posters called eternity. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> the mystery in between two eternities. I like am the mystery. <laughs> my life is definitely the mystery between two eternities. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love the concept of eternity. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I really want to ask you more about your, your relationship with with those pills and with that whole sort of process of of creating the the sort of synthetic uh, drugs, but um, but before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about what you just mentioned uh, the immune system because that's a specific interest of mine, and I think it's yeah it's very timely, it's very relevant with the whole COVID thing happening. What what is your current project with regards to the human immune system what are you what are you doing there well i i hear people talking about um about having some sort of a the passport to sh- uh, which is supposedly to measure um somebody's risk of infection you know the idea of a vaccination passport and i'm not sure if i i'm not sure if i want one of those i'm not sure if i want um one of those rna vaccines in my body to tell the honest truth because this you know, i've been studying toxicology for and drug design of 10 to 20 years and someone coming along with a drug with no long-term safety data gives a question mark from me, you know, what, what, what's going on here? And so I think that instead of um, having a certificate that says um, that your um, injections are up to date, I think we should be validating immunity. Um, 
yeah. if we're going to have any any uh, any kind of a system, I think we should be looking at people's bodies and see how healthy they are. So, for instance, if you've, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different ways to boost your immune system and repel a disease. Um, if you look at uh, let's stay away from the controversial ones because there's so much information that's burning into people's minds. If you look at um, zinc, for instance, um, if you've got enough zinc inside your cells, then zinc will block the um, reverse transcriptase, the enzyme that the virus needs to replicate. If you don't know too much about viruses, imagine you've the olden days when you used to photocopy a piece of paper. You take your paper, you put some carbon paper in there, and you press on it, and then that's how you get a copy. That carbon paper that's your that's that sits inside your cells. It's reverse transcriptase. The uh, the virus comes in there and it marries up with that reverse transcriptase, and boom, it makes a copy of itself. Zinc stops that from happening, so the virus will come into your cells. Can't do anything. Can't reproduce. So if you've got enough zinc in your cells, then um, the virus isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to replicate. It's not going to spread. So how do you get enough zinc into your cells? Um, how do we measure whether someone's got the right sort of levels of intracellular drink? That would that would be like one example of a measure of immunity against the disease, you know, and um, against the virus replication. And so another one would be that we know if. Um, is research that shows that people in meditation, meditating on, is it gratitude or loving kindness for 10 minutes a day after a period of time that the immune system is boosted by 50%. Is it, does it T cells are boosted by 50% if you meditate for 10 minutes? Haven't got it, you can look it up. But um, there's, there's a lot of different ways of boosting immune system and boosting immunity. And of course, the other way is that, um, you know, they're finding in a lot of places that people who've previously been exposed to this virus or another similar coronavirus actually um, fare better against the virus than someone that's been vaccinated with one of the new um, injections. And so I just think that in order to um, chill out some of the discrimination that could occur between the two different uh, modalities of thought out there, vax people and non-vax people, we need to just be a bit more universal and say, well, if this person that can actually show that uh, that they that they are at very low risk of spread, catching or spreading an infection, then you know, perhaps they could use that instead of a vaccine passport because it's actually a better measure. And um, that's the that's the idea that I was talking about. And there's a few people developing different antibody tests and different different uh, methodologies for doing that. Um, I just don't like the discrimination. I don't like the forced um, partaking in a big drug experiment. So, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. And and let me just give a quick disclaimer because in some parts of the world, maybe most, this is a incredibly controversial topic, and people have a sort of reflexive reaction whenever anyone starts to talk about this of either like, you know, their, their mind is already made up and generally it's, you know, vaccines are good and everyone who doesn't think so is crazy or vaccines are horrible and everyone who doesn't think so is crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, I just want to encourage people to, to question that sort of uh, reflexive reaction and keep an open mind. And, and i I think, I mean, that sounds like an amazing project. Um, really, really interesting and precisely what's needed right now to help us sort of work our way through this incredibly politicized uh, health discussion. You know, there's, it seems so strange to me that it's political, you know, especially in, in the US, there's a, a really strong sort of dividing line um, in terms of political belief when, you know, there's nothing inherently political about this discussion. It's about you know, a virus and about the way our bodies work. And, and it's just, it, it's consistently really frustrating to me how difficult it is to find reliable information, um, 
precisely because it's so political and so few people are willing to have honest discussions about it. Yeah, well, maybe the angle to come from is the same as that these ideas, um, these really are the same as religions. If you've been in a religion, um, then a good thing to do is to get out and go try and being in a different one and get to know those people. Like I did, my, I thought that some of the Christian things a little bit wobbly in my brain. Why don't I go and see what it's like being a Buddhist for a while and then go into Hindu and just sort of, then I just sort of found that, you know, as long as you're looking for truth, you keep getting drawn to truth. And it's like the light, the, the, there's lots of pieces of the jigsaw out there. And the, the, the best way to grow in knowledge and wisdom is to really take on your opponent's mindset arguments and beliefs and get in and see what is it that they that, that that's in there that is that's driving them and so you know if you're whether you are a pro-vax or an anti-vax and i don't even like those words because for me i'd like to have a different injection i'd like to have a a, a, um, a different type of a, a vaccine to the injections that are going around this there's a lot of different people in different spaces so let's just be open and um and just sort of see it well how, do, how can we move forward so that we can all accept and tolerate each other's viewpoints and just try to see things objectively and step back from whatever our religion is um, because they you know these mindsets that we get trapped in they're just a set of reactions and and it's better to step back from it all take on somebody else's viewpoint for a while yeah and, and just with the, the uh, uh, mindset of, of trying to keep learning right you know and, and yeah and you know as we we so we had a, a brief conversation uh before this and as we said there, like I, I'd be really curious, like if you continue with this project and, and keep developing sort of tools for, for how to measure immunity, I would love to apply that to the kind of stuff we're doing here with the heat and the cold and, and all of that, because there is, there is some data to suggest that uh, it's a big improvement for, for the immune system, but uh, it's really not clear how uh, and not clear to, to what extent. And, yes. um, you know, uh, breath work, fasting, uh, extreme physical exercise, uh, meditation, visualization, cold exposure, heat exposure, psychedelics, all that stuff. Like I would love to have more tools to measure and understand the effects. So if you continue with that project or if you're looking for any kind of collaboration or whatever, like definitely count me in. Um, yeah, there's other groups out of there that are, that are doing some things as well, which maybe I can... I have to connect you up with yeah awesome beautiful it just started raining like crazy outside uh i are you hearing that noise in the mic yeah i don't know if i can do anything about it from here no i can just give me give me a sec let me sort of shut some doors and windows and and see what what i can do one, one sec <laughs> okay thought you kind of asked me to stop but <laughs> okay so so yeah let's let's get into let's get into drugs what that experience you described uh, as like an, an ad salesman or whatever it was, um, was that your first encounter with these substances or like, how did, how did you get into this, this whole world of, you know, running a lab other and than, creating synthetic substances? Other than having a pharmaceutical company experiment on me as a child with their um, asthma drugs slash psychedelic, um, I should really try to hunt down the patent. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, this was this was my first. I was a real straight kind of a Christiany dude back then, and um, yeah, I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, that that puts me in the same but i thought well this is funny because aren't drugs supposed to be evil and sinful or whatever and that one just kind of put me in just kind of put me in the zone yeah that's not a that's not a drug that's a plant okay and then realize, <laughs> what does the bible say about plants it says um these are put here to 
for us to eat and for us to use for useful purposes. And then later, of course, finding in Exodus, they're like, take the cannabis plant and squeeze out the oil and put it all over the covenant box and fire it up. And then God will come and talk to you. It's like, oh, okay. These guys obviously knew about um, psychedelics. Are you familiar with all the evidence that's coming out now of like the ancient Christians and the Greeks and the Romans and all of their relationship with, with psychedelic substances? Almost every culture going back to the dawn of time have worked out that the plants that are lying around the place, which when you eat them, have an interesting effect. Those are actually really useful tools. It's only in the last couple of hundred years we started getting scared of them and thinking, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's happening with that. I mean, the reality is this, that even in the Bible, when it starts talking about, um, you know, these, these plants, it says, whatever you do, receive it with a prayer of thanks. What it translates into is um, put yourself into a state of gratitude, you know, because whatever's going on inside is going to be amplified, you know, and you're actually, you're actually setting the destination for where you're going to go. And so put yourself into a state of state of gratitude and wonderful things are going to happen. If you um, partake with fear, then you're going to go somewhere horrible. And yep. um, those instructions to the Christian people are exactly the same as the instructions to all the other shamans and all the other cultures is to, it's about set and setting and mind state um, because these things are here for us to open up to higher dimensions. Yeah. Um, these are the gateways. These are the doorways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But your, your engagement with these substances originally, at least was, I mean, you created a series of substances designed to help people get off of illegal substances, uh, stop yeah. being addicted and, you know, creating uh, ideally, Stopping I mean, I, I know addicted, this is controversial, okay. but create safe alternatives, right? I mean, that was, that was the idea. It wasn't, it wasn't psychedelic. It wasn't about. That's right. Yeah. yeah I realized that the, I came to a realization that these plants were tools and they were useful around the same time. Um, we had an ecstasy death in the family. There'd only been a few ecstasy deaths in New Zealand. And um, my cousin took too much MDMA, had a classic hyponatremia MDMA overdose and was by himself. And, and lost his life and left his um, son behind. And and then a little while later, another friend of mine uh, was on uh, crystal meth. Um, you might want to edit this out, you might not. But um, a while later, another friend of mine on crystal meth commits suicide horribly using a samurai sword. He commit hari curry at a party in front of a room full of people and stabbed himself sort of 23 times um, with, a, with a sword because you know he thought he was invincible. And uh, and these two these two things made me think. Like, I really feel like I've got to do something about this. And and when I'd been going along to um, you know the my Christian movements and um, telling people this is what's going to happen in life, this is what's going to happen. People were saying to me, "You are going to be uh, used to um, to change rules and laws and confront governments and um, and develop positive all this stuff that sounded really boring." I just wanted to play the guitar. I thought, "No, I want to go and play the guitar." Be rock stars. No, you're going to stand up for the oppressed and the the untouchable lepers in our society and change laws and things. Oh God, I'm going to need a haircut and a job. You know what? So anyway, um, sorry, can, can we just stop one one sec? I just really want to highlight the the beautiful tension here between. I mean, everything we've been talking about the the sort of positive beautiful mysterious side of these substances and, and the ways they can help you connect with the mystery to life and the other side of when it's you know a different substance a different context a different person it can get you yeah. into some really dark places that are clearly not desirable and i just i just want to highlight that it's like 
it's really important to to keep an open mind, yes, and also be grounded in reality and you know proceed with caution and with understanding of yourself above above all else. So sorry, I, I sorry to interrupt, but I just want to to point that out. It's a, it's a really important tension to and keep both sides of that tension in mindset at, at all times, I think. Yeah. I mean, drugs are tools like, um, like I've got a bunch of power tools downstairs. I've got, you know, a drill and a drop saw and, you know, hammers and all these sorts of things. And I can use it to make furniture. Um, you know, I could really hurt myself, you know, and so I need to learn how to use those things and be in the right um, state of mind and intention when I use them. Cause I want all my fingers cause I play the guitar. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So please keep going. Keep going. So you, you were yeah, primed. You were ready. Maybe, maybe there is a place for using, um, for creating safer alternatives. I, I went to, I went to, um, I went to our government, and New Zealand's a small country, just five million people. So you can pop down and say, "Who's making up the drug laws? These guys over here. Oh, can I make an appointment and sit down with them?" And um and and sort of look, guys, you know, I'm I'm from this family and just want to know why the drugs are illegal because it seems like if we had some quality control systems, both of these friends of mine would still be alive and they'd still be able to be good dads. I mean, sure, they ate the wrong thing that night, but they didn't deserve to die. And then and particularly uh, my friend Hone with the crystal meth, he'd been trying to get help and. And he couldn't. And um, and because we've got so much stigma around drug use and you're, if, you're, if you're a drug user, you're the droid they're looking for, you know, so it's hard to get help. Um, I'd actually, um, I got to a point where I was using drugs myself. I'd stopped. The spiritual thing was just a little bit too hard. And so I'd pulled out of that. And uh, what had happened? Yeah, I started taking some of these, taking pills and partying and all this kind of thing. I noticed that when I took ecstasy that um, I... Um, uh, all a whole, a whole lot of kind of insecurities and things went away and um, negative self-image kind of fell away and it just kind of advanced me forwards and I thought oh, well this is really helpful and useful and um, and that with some of the other psychedelics as well that maybe they were a good thing for people who you know were a little spiritually dull so but then after these um, fatalities going and talking to the government saying well why don't we just you know why don't we decriminalize and have some quality control systems and make it safer and they said, well, to be really blunt, if we do that, America will stop buying our meat and cheese. And, um, you know, we've tried, we've tried <laughs> loosening up on the drugs before and we've kind of made an agreement back in 1967. We signed this charter of psychotropic substances and everything has to stay illegal um, or we get trade sanctions. And I'm, oh, what about if we just create some new drugs and are on America's list? then we could build a regulatory system and just have some safety measures, right? And they said, okay, <laughs> you start doing that and we'll tell the police to leave you alone, but just don't kill anybody, right? And so <laughs> I... I love it. Um, That's good. That's good. So I thought, okay, I'm going to need some smarty pants. And so I, I pulled together some... Um, any academics really talk to academics who um, had the right um, skills for some drug design and just thought, well, let's, let's do some harm minimization. I read the drug policy and it said, well, this is harm minimization. And from my background, I thought well, this means mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is totally going to work. Harm minimization is saying, well, the, the reason we have the drug laws is to reduce the chance of somebody being hurt, you know? 
Um, that's what that's what they say. And so our idea was, well, let's create a safer alternative that's just going to reduce the risk level straight away. And if we can create a safer alternative to a substance that's causing harm, and uh, it's demonstrably safer, and we can put that on the market um, at around the same or better price, then people are going to switch over to the safer alternative, and we're going to have less harm happening in our society. And so that was what we presented. And they said, yeah, actually, that works. That fits with the policy. And so we started looking at crystal meth, which was the problem drug at the time. Um, uh, crystal meth was driving people crazy. People had gone from, you know, um, in the late 90s, people would snort some speed and they would party for the weekend and they'd come down and get on with their job. There's no cocaine in New Zealand. The boat doesn't stop here. It goes to Australia and they hoover it up and there's none left when it comes to New Zealand. So everybody that wants to stay at the party tonight is, is on the, was on crystal meth, you know. And um some reason by people started with chomping on the crystal meth or cutting it and diluting it further and further with so much crap that by you know you the guys the, the meth would hit the gangs on thursday and by the time it was saturday at the club it was like 96 percent crap and you know only a tiny bit of speed so the gangs wanted to, to um to, to keep their brand loyalty and to keep their product integrity they started just selling this pure crystal not realizing that the pharmacological impact was going to be totally different so instead of route of administration going up your nose um, people would be smoking or people started injecting. Mm. Then instead of having a six to eight hour kind of a effect and then wearing off, you'd have a fast effect that wore off and then you'd need to redose and you kept the redose, redose. And by the end of um, the weekend, you'd have had so much that you're in a total psychotic state. You're not going to sleep for enough days that you go nuts. And then people would people would just started getting violence, crying, people shooting each other and all this kind of crap. And it was, this wasn't something we were used to in New Zealand. So we thought, well, how about if we have a safe alternative to meth we, long story short, we looked around and found um, benzylpiperazine, which is not the nicest drug in the whole world. But in this 1973, there was a journal article showing that um, some people had given this benzylpiperazine to meth addicts and said, basically, what do you think? And they liked it, which they used as evidence that it had potential for abuse. But we thought we can use that as evidence that um, this might substitute for meth and addicts. And this drug was a metabolite of an antidepressant that had been on the market. So it had toxicity data and known safety. And so that, this, this fits the profile for a meth substitute. We know that it substitutes in addicts that it could reduce demand and then it's a whole lot safer. It looks like it's non-addictive because you feel pretty crap the next day and you don't want more. And um, even in an in, um, in overdose, it, it doesn't kill. So we would have people take you know, um, real high doses. People, some people were taking 100 pills at once. People made suicide attempts and nobody died. Um, and so we went to government and said, we're going to start doing this in the clubs. And we started making these pills. And, you know, over eight and a half years, we told we sold 26 million pills to 400,000 consumers on 10 and a half million occasions. And there were zero deaths, zero lasting injuries. And um, when, when government did research to find out what was going on, nobody was getting addicted. So they said, well, this works. And they'd said to me, you know, if, if this works, you can rewrite the drug laws. And what I'd felt, you know, when I was like, God, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, I felt um, head for the laws and just do the right thing and follow your heart attitude. And um, if you're doing the right thing, it's going to create this energy around you that's going to push the laws back out of the way and they're going to reform around you. And so I was, that's what I, that was my belief 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 
belief in that if I just change the ideas in my mind, I can change them in the people around me, I can change them in my nation, I can change them on the planet. And so I am going to take my idea and I'm going to go to take the whole planet with this idea. So I went to my government, they allowed me over these years to rewrite the legislation and create new legislation. Um, I, I set up, um, a lot of other people copied my products because I didn't know what a patent was and started selling them everywhere. So I went to them, guys, I'm not going to sue you guys, you've all broken my copyright and copied. My, my, my products but we're going to sit around a table here and you guys are going to pay for the lawyers and we're going to draft new legislation we're going to put it out there and change the world so we've got our legislation through parliament legislation basically says someone has got a new drug they put it through the same safety standards as a medicine um, and they can prove that it's not going to cause massive amounts of harm that it's within a, an acceptable risk level then they're allowed to sell it but we're going to have some quality control restrictions around marketing restrictions around messaging restrictions around who can buy it and sell it my idea was that you'd have somebody skilled in clinical assessment of alcohol and drug issues is the person that's you know selling the product that's who you um, who you're connecting with and just good common sense stuff. We got it through parliament and then we, 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 we got to United Nations and presented um, to the UNODC, United Nations Office of Drug Control. And we're told, you know, well done, New Zealand. This is the only solution on the table for the emerging drugs here because new designer drugs were coming out at that rate. Look, sort of one every week. All of the... Um, all of the academic literature sort of went online when the um, when my dad's internet sort of went global, and um, and uh, drug design became really really easy. So if one drug got banned, then pop, it was really easy to find another one. So Chinese suppliers would just have drug engineers just changing, 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 changes. So as soon as one gets banned, wham, another one comes out. It's just coming out every week, and so. Our idea of, hey, let's just take them all and the most useful ones, let's put them through toxicity evaluation and make the safe ones available and that will dry up demand for the others. It seemed like a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I was riding pretty high and was making millions of dollars. I'd set a figure in my mind, a friend of mine um, who unfortunately lost his life said to me just before he went, he'd made millions of dollars selling my products and I just kind of wasn't making money. I stepped back out and thought, look, I'll just be the PR and legals guy because I don't want to be responsible really for what you guys are doing selling these drugs. I'd want to just keep it really small. Everyone was just going massive. And so um, he'd said, look, all you need to do, if you want 20 million bucks, just hold the idea in your mind that you've got $20 million and don't let anything else come in your mind and then you'll have $20 million. And I didn't realize he was manic depressive and he's, this is the way that he lived his life is he had to hold a good happy thought all the time because otherwise he clocked out. You know, it's so much. I mean, we were just living a crazy lifestyle, just screaming around the place in Lamborghinis and just partying and just um, all the things that young men do when they've accidentally made way too much money too fast. And, um, and so this is what I, so I did the same thing. I just held this idea in my mind of having 20 million and within two years, I'd made this, this, embarrassing disgusting amount of money that i didn't know what to do with yeah. i thought i was going to get knighted you know i thought i was going to come back to new zealand and have like a get made sir i'll be like sir me about it you know for, for for getting this you know united nations commentation and drug policy but i just did not realize it. i just didn't really think it through so i came back and said okay well crystal meth's not really such a problem anymore we had all these synthetic cannabinoids, which some of them were great, but most of them were kind of horrible. And it was kind of it was kind of awkward because we'd put the system in place for um, developing all these new substances and that, and things were screaming out, and they were still banning them. But so, but some of them, you know, we didn't really need a safer alternative to cannabis. We just needed cannabis. 
And so I came out and said, well, what we need to do next is focus on alcohol. You know, the biggest killer in our country is alcohol. It's the worst drug. It kills two or three people in the country every day. It's toxic to every organ in the body. It's highly addictive and it will absolutely kill your children and overdose if they drink a bottle of it. Let's have a safe alternative to alcohol. I'm going to start working on it now. It's not going to be that hard. We're just going to work on GABA receptors. And so it took two weeks for the alcohol industry to go to the prime minister and go, 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 stop this guy. And um, next minute, the laws all changed overnight. It was election time, and uh, my lawyers said to me, look, you just stood up in front of the prime minister in the middle of an election and made him look silly. Um, you're going to go down, man. <laughs> and, uh, someone called me from parliament and said, the liquor industry have talked to the prime minister. You're going to get taken out. And I didn't really know what that meant. You know, I thought it was invincible. And around the same time, I'd been feeling yuck about having money and being rich and everyone else not being rich and just that inequality and not wanting to be in the 1%. Because you've got all day, you've got people ringing you up, begging you for money for this and that and the other. And eventually you have to isolate yourself from all the people that don't have money. You only hang around with all the other rich people. It's a lot of them are jerks. And um, so you just sort of form this bubble and push everyone out and then just realize, yuck, I really don't like being in this. This is horrible. And um, I remember sitting down by my, my nice house with a nice little stream. I'd sit down there by the stream and saying, take away whatever I don't need. I really don't like this. This is, I don't like where it's going. I could feel that my soul was being sucked into the earth. I could feel like I was attached to this earth and all of my spirituality and who I was was being drained out and my morals were going a little darker. And it was like, yuck, I've had enough. I want out. And um yeah, I sort of prayed that, if you like, and it took about 48 hours from that. Government changed all the laws overnight, made everything I was doing illegal, and put a clause in the law saying that industry may not seek compensation for the sudden change. And then the tax guys and the health guys and the, every department came and audited me, and um, the... the um, they told my bank, I think, that they were now bankrolling a drug dealer, which means the bank could lose its license and have to shut down unless they dumped me. And so the bank took all my properties and put them to mortgage sale. The tax guys came with all these made-up figures. They went through all my staff and told my marketers and science guys that um, I hadn't paid their income tax and, and just made up stories and turned stuff around so everybody sued me. And they just came and said, give us a million dollars next week or we're going to put you in jail for tax evasion. And and um, <laughs> that is yeah. got taken down hard because they challenged the alcohol industry. And, and um, they also said that they'd had some diplomatic communications from the United States. And I said, what do they say? And they said, well, we can't tell you because it's a secret, but it kind of says WTF. They don't like the drug policy suggestions that we made at United Nations. <laughs> that was it. I was just out. <laughs> Bang. And so, yeah, well, uh, it's quite a story, man. People. It's quite a story. Yeah, so my lawyers just said, get out of the country now. Go. And take your family and go. And my poor wife, and I've got a wife and two uh, two children. And, um, yeah, I'd say, look, we're not going to lose everything. There's no way they can. They, they can't legally take everything off us. So they just change the laws. They can do whatever they want. Tax guys are allowed to do whatever they want. They've got special laws. They've got a law that says that the tax guy is the – the tax department is one man and it's a foreign national. He operates in diplomatic immunity and he's allowed to do whatever he wants. And I said, look, I'll, I'll make an offer to you. And the tax guys said, um, they said, no, the law says that in certain circumstances, the director may, at his discretion, choose a certain individual who will be shown the full penalty 
of the tax system in order to encourage voluntary compliance in the remainder of the population. So we're allowed to refuse any offer that you make. And we just, they said, we don't give a fuck about your money. We just want to see you go to jail. And <laughs> like, hey, bye. <laughs> That's brutal, uh, man. That's brutal. Yeah. So try not to piss off um, big industry and America. <laughs> yeah. That was a take home there. Yeah. Yeah. Good reminders when you create multi-million dollar corporations for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, uh, can, can you tell that same story? on just emotionally like i mean I, I can imagine i can infer the the incredible rise to to power to fame to recognition and the incredible downfall but like on a personal emotional psychological level like how did nobody's you experience that asked me before nobody's ever asked me to do that before so it started out with such Beautiful, pure motives, and we would take the money and put it into sending people into nightclubs and training people on emergency first aid and counseling and have paid drug counselors in the nightclubs looking after people and doing um, all that kind of stuff, all charity and just being beautiful, stepping back from being the guy making the money and just being a real pure soul. And then gradually getting frustrated that my friends have got Lamborghinis and I can't pay my mortgage and I'm everything's a little bit too hard and I'm still living in a crappy house and maybe maybe we need to have a bigger house and thinking, oh, and then trying to have a committee and trying to get everyone to do the right thing and work with me to instruct the lawyers the way they want to do so that we can make safer drugs so that we can have the best policy for our community so we can spread it through the world, having everyone not wanting to do that. They just want to make money. So, okay, in order to have the power, I need to be the guy that gets making all the money money restructuring everything so that i'm making the money and then kind of getting a little dark and a little selfishy and you know just you can get whatever you want when you've got the money and you can tell people to do what you want and someone's always going to do it and everybody wants to be with you and everyone's hanging around with you and if you're a little bit insecure that's actually just builds this ego ego i want to be a rock star i want all this stuff i'm going to just travel around this ego 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 feeling kind of lost inside something is not right with this and then this is not right this is not right help i'm stuck i've created myself into a monster you know what's going on oh my god Oh, people are getting sick on our products. Oh no, this is all. Oh, what can I do? Crash, and then like, um, oh, where do all my friends go? <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, um, um, and then depression, and then, um, oh, oh, my friends and family have turned on me. My government's turned on me. Ah, oh, I have to leave my country. I can't even stay here. My whole country, my government have turned on me. They want to put me in jail. I was trying to do the right thing. All the media are just saying horrible stuff about me that I've just been trying to poison children and stuff and like making up lies and I have to go and hide. And now I'm just going to try and start again. So go live in Thailand and, sit and learn how to go and sit in the temple and just stop all the thoughts. There's this total loss of self-esteem and depression and just nothing. If you look at pictures of me, my hair's like here, I've got a beard like Moses, you know, years, and then not being able to be the best husband anymore and not being able to be the best person and a few years of like, uh, and then starting to feel something 
else and starting to feel there's something else in me that when all that ego's gone there's another reality that's in me and I am called and I have a mission and I can complete my mission I can believe in myself and I can stand and I can sort of rise back up you know <laughs> does that does that's kind of it you know Mm, just open-mindedness open-mindedness less ego and yeah that's beautiful man thank you thank you for that and i'm i'm it seems like a crime against humanity but my son has to go to school i've got to i've got to cut this short i've got oh. a few more minutes but maybe just as a as a way to wrap it up if you could just just tell us where where are you now uh, emotionally spiritually practically in your business in your life now you've you've gone through that business wise, working new startup to produce um medicinal cannabinoids that are too hard to get out of the plant and other psychedelics using enzymes for wastewater and sunlight if anyone's interested contact me mattbowden.com um spiritually coming to a place of um, cross-platform, just being really open, encouraging others to see that we're at a point of evolution. And part of the evolution is learning how to change our mind state so that we can enter into higher dimensionality so that we are not thrown around by the fear that's on this planet right now and able to be uh, solace for those around us. Um, yeah, and legally safe having been through bankruptcy and liquidation starting again and really being focused on what's going to be good for our community not being so excited about the capitalist dream anymore oh, um man i really want to hear more about synthetic psychedelics uh let me let me just have i'm i'm not a scientist but like so so just from you know the outside when i see people describe ayahuasca, for example, and they say, well, you know, the active ingredient is DMT. It's like, yeah, but when you just do DMT, the experience is radically different. Like, obviously there's more going on than just one active substance, you know? And, and I guess I'm curious, like in your, your lab work, are you tr trying to replicate the entire substance? And if so, what is the value of doing that like why not just use the natural substance why why do it in a lab sometimes we've got some diseases that and that over the years that when we've just tried to use a natural substance after we took that natural substance and then used our natural intellect and our natural understanding of science we were able to tweak it and make it actually way more effective okay that's part of um, who we that's part of our function here on the planet is sometimes we can use tools and make things work better starting with what's provided to us and in the same way we took cannabinoids and we created hundreds of new cannabinoids some of them were a thousand times the potency of thc what do those do for cancer maybe they're more effective what do they do for some of the other debilitating diseases which cannabis works for um, that's part of the project i'm working on now but then with psychedelics um, maybe lsd is good therapeutically but six to eight hours might be too long maybe we can bunch that up you know maybe the psilocybin is a little bit to this a little bit to that how can we change it how can we alter it can we um, bring that experience down so that so, so it's something you can vape and just like for a couple of minutes be in a 
yeah, better creative state of mind, a way to sort of have a short-term microdose experience, which is kind of like having a cigarette, but far less toxic and far more useful. And what else can we, where else can we go with these things? And more importantly, the next wave after this pandemic of whatever you, it's just the next wave after this COVID pandemic is going to be a wave globally of trauma. And the most useful and hopeful looking medicines we have on the planet for trauma are the psychedelics. Because what we're using at the moment for trauma are things which block the emotions and shut people down, which is good for one person maybe to be in the house like that, but not everyone on the planet at the same time, all on the anxiety trauma meds that we've got. They don't fix the problem. They just um, suppress, suppress, suppress. And we can't all focus or can't function as a society if everybody's on those. We need something which acts rapidly and, and one or two sessions can make a big change. That's the psychedelics. And so it's not just for um, people who are into tripping or people that are into that little small community, they wanna do those drugs and it's not that what it's about. Mankind is gonna need some solutions for trauma. We're all gonna need solutions. They're gonna be affordable, fast and easy to use. And um, I think it's our fun. in New Zealand after developing that legislation where we can create new drugs, our responsibility to the rest of the planet, I think is to use that to work on rapid development, uh, testing and deployment of treatments for trauma because that's going to be the next big problem, I think. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. I'm going to, if you don't mind, one last question, um, then I got to yeah. go. Uh, so maybe I'm just like a pharmacolog pharmacological Luddite. I don't know. Um, but I, it seems to me that precisely the difficulty and duration of these experiences are an integral part of their power. Like, so, so to, there's this quote, the, the only way out is through, right? And I actually don't know where that comes from. If it comes from Dante or it comes from other people paraphrasing Dante, I don't know. But, but it seems in my experience, personally and professionally with psychedelics and with therapy, is like, you need to suffer. To, to some degree, you need to get in touch with your, your suffering and your, your heartache and, and really come to terms with your trauma on a, on a deep visceral level in order for the healing to be thorough and sustainable. Um, and that's, I'm just curious to hear your perspective on that. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not I'm saying you're wrong. I just want to hear your, your thoughts on that question mark i'm going to put a big question mark over that and say why do we think that why do we think we need to suffer is it because um that's not a here part of the trip and we're stuck with that why don't we do some experiments why don't we take the psychedelic with all that horrible clutter and let's take the psychedelic without and compare and see if we get better results that's let's let's um let's examine that theory and see if it's really a healthy theory because I don't think we need to suffer at all I think we could improve and tidy those things up and it might actually be more attractive to more people um, if we don't have all that other uh, purging and horrible stuff because yeah, I, I actually think you might be able to it might be the DMT that's working perhaps and maybe it's got nothing to do with all the pain that you went through it was nice it's been really handy for us to be able to frame the healing in terms of oh that suffering was good because it helped but I think we should re-examine that and I think we might find that the suffering is not actually necessary at all. And we might be able to even improve um, outcomes uh, if we don't make people so uncomfortable. Possible. Uh, yeah, well, um, we'll just have to leave this discussion for, for another time. Um, I have I've got a million thoughts coming to my mind. I'd love to continue this this discussion more in depth 
should be a free gift i think it should be a free gift oh, I, I, I wish it, it i wish it could be i wish it could be i just oh i'm i really i'm not sure it can but yeah. but as you say we got to experiment we gotta we gotta test it do the comparisons and and come to sensible conclusions i think that's that's brilliant that's brilliant because many of these experiences can be attained without using drugs at all that's why yeah yeah but again it's it's uh well i'm i i gotta i gotta go um, you've gotta go okay. <laughs> uh yeah thank, thank you very much uh brilliant conversation uh just yeah pure pleasure on on my end uh really happy to have connected with you thanks eric really, really appreciate it to everybody Thank you.